0: Will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the prophet Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. I'll begin today reading Isaiah 53 at verse 10 and read through chapter 54, verse 3. That's to prepare us for our sermon text in Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Isaiah 53 is, of course, the song of the suffering servant of the Lord. I pick up at verse 10 because here we begin to see the fruit of his suffering. Isaiah 53, verse 10 through 54, verse 3. This is the word of the Lord, so let's give it our reverent best attention. For the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. and interceded for the transgressors. Shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting, and cry aloud, you who have not travailed, for the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. And now we turn to the first resurrection day in Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached, and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, and he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware the things which have happened here in these days. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord really has risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We've read your word and are thrilled by what we read, but we pray now that your spirit would open our minds and understanding to it, that we might love you better, that we might appreciate more fully the great things you have undertaken on behalf of your dear church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a truly astonishing age, I think, it's astonishing, at least to me it is, as someone who aspires to engage constructively with our culture, it's astonishing that so many today demonstrate this uncanny ability to hold with a bulldog tenacity to various unproven, unprovable social and political opinions while completely disregarding proven events of such vast and massive historical consequence and far-reaching implications as the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It's almost as if this apocalyptic triumph of Jesus Christ over sin and death and the grave doesn't apply to people 364 days of the year. Only on Easter, only perhaps at the funeral of friends, does this smashing victory over the fallen natural order of things seem to ripple over the conscience of this present age. But those three words, He is risen, aren't they something more than just a a nice Easter greeting that few people even use these days? Yes. It's more. It is far, far more than that. Those words weren't even meant for a greeting at all originally, it's an announcement. It's a breaking news flash to dead and dying humanity a proclamation echoing down the corridors of time for the last 20 centuries he is risen This isn't comfortable elevator music you're listening this is a fire alarm Act on this news and live disregard it or sleep through it and die he is risen. And he has risen not religiously or philosophically or metaphysically or metaphorically or spiritually or inspirationally or any of the other merely sentimental ways in which faithless, unbelieving people tend to look at it. Let those plain words of verse 34 sink in. The apostles and those gathered with them late in the day are just now beginning to realize the cosmic scope of what has just happened. The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. So physically, anatomically, physiologically, his torn, lifeless body arose in full color, vibrant, Glory from stone-cold death. He arose in such an indisputable way that they were able to see him and hear him and feel him and handle him, even feed him a late-night supper of broiled fish, as we're going to see next time. He arose in such a way that Mary Magdalene, that very morning, had mistaken him at first for, not a ghost, but a gardener, had actually embraced him and clung to him. That's the solemn testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses at the time, many of whom eventually sealed that eyewitness testimony with their own blood. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is today risen from the dead, never to die again. And that means we have to consider this doctrine very seriously as the life or death matter that it really is. We need to deal gently but firmly with the profound blindness of human culture to this fact, our human culture, our Western culture. We need to deal firmly but gently with that blindness, not to mention the tremendous social and political impacts of that news that he's risen. And if we've been delivered from that spiritual blindness ourselves by the gospel, then we as professing Christians need to begin living accordingly because for the believer in the risen and reigning Jesus new principles suddenly come into play a new ethic with a vital new power behind it because by faith we are united covenantally with him who once was dead but today lives in the words of Hebrews 7 He lives according to the power of an indestructible life. And so let me suggest to you that this covenantal union with the risen Jesus Christ outweighs, it outweighs any fictional social compact that claims to bind us together with a much wider, more religiously diverse community of earthbound men. the social compact of John Locke and Thomas Jefferson that is in a sense what you and I in Christ have been called out of by the gospel that social compact doesn't hold believers in the risen Jesus Christ like it once did it can't it can't hold us because now in Christ our allegiances are altogether different our understanding of the whole world and the way it works is completely different. The fact is that, as the Bible puts it, Christ has called and constituted his church to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him Who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? So here you are, an American citizen in the first half of the 21st century. You want justice? You want the power necessary to bring that justice to bear in our society? You want someone finally to set things right in our country and in the world? Listen, Captain America and Iron Man and their fictional friends aren't the place to look for that help. But neither, apparently, is the so-called democratic process. Neither superheroes nor political parties offer any reasonable hope for success in these things. Apart from the gospel of Christ risen from the dead, we the people of the United States are out of ideas. We're out of ideas, out of answers. But we know that Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning, he has overcome the world. It's in his hands. So, what's the impact of the Lord's bodily resurrection on those who first saw him that day? Getting back to our text, what was the impact of his resurrection on those who first saw him? What did it do for them to see him alive again? The first one actually to meet him that morning seems to have been Mary the Magdalene. You can read her story in the 20th chapter of John. Luke, on the other hand, seems to focus on events somewhat later on, that afternoon and evening. What effect did these appearances have on his followers? The first effect it had that afternoon was to console the disillusioned and distressed. He consoled the disillusioned and distressed. And you can be sure that there were plenty of deeply disillusioned and distressed people leaving Jerusalem that particular week. Passover now behind them, Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world started returning home, wherever home was. They started returning home by the thousands. But the events of this particular Passover that we've been reading about, this particular Passover had left a real bad taste in the mouths of many. Because at this Passover, they had just witnessed the greatest public miscarriage of justice and of mercy that their minds could possibly take in. That their own Jewish leaders, their own high priest should have connived with the hated Gentile magistrates to condemn and publicly crucify their dearly beloved Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. This one on whom so many had pinned their hopes for the redemption of Israel. Two of these Jewish disciples now head back home to Emmaus, just a couple hours' walk home from Jerusalem. And these two people... We only know the name of one of them. They walk and talk together. And the more they walk and talk, the more depressed they become. Because the public ministry of this good man Jesus had been so bright. It had been so encouraging. He was clearly a rising star. It had been so filled with power and grace and plain good sense. No man ever spoke as this man. And they loved him. Now he's dead. The very fact that he is dead demonstrates just how far redemption is from us Jews after all. It wasn't long ago that it seemed to be so close. Just a week ago, the kingdom of God truly seemed to be at hand. Well, the Romans, of course, wouldn't let him live. That's to be expected. Because some people actually wanted to make Jesus king, which wouldn't have set well with Tiberius Caesar at all. But neither would our own rulers. These men and institutions that we've been taught as Jews from childhood to trust, even they wanted him dead. So what do we do? Every hope for the future has just been snuffed out as far as we're concerned. There'll never be another Jesus. There'll never be anyone like him. Then we come to verse 15. And it came about, while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached And began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And of course they were. Of course they were. Because even if they had happened to notice a resemblance, how could it be Jesus? It's impossible. To their eyes, he's just another Jewish pilgrim going home, providentially going in their direction. Whatever he may look like, whatever resemblance he might bear to Jesus or anyone else, why not travel together? Why not travel together? Other pilgrims on other occasions used to sing the Psalms, of course, to pass the time and the miles as they're on pilgrimage, but no one here felt much like singing, not at this point. Because they were sad. They're sad. Jesus died, and all hope, as far as they're concerned, all hope died with them. Well, Luke is just too gifted a storyteller for me to try to elaborate on their conversation. Just as it reads, just as it appears on the pages of the Gospel, it is so natural, it is so transparent, and so true to life. And frankly this narrative, is so understatedly comical. I hope you got that as we read it together. It's comical. This one single Greek word that Jesus speaks in verse 19 translates into two English words that together constitute, in my opinion, the driest, most subtle humor to be found anywhere in the Bible Cleopas makes this passing reference to the things that went on in Jerusalem over the past week, really distressing things that virtually everyone in the city knows about. And Jesus says to him, What things? What things? What's this big news around town that's got you so down, my friend? What is it I'm supposed to know that I don't know? And that simple one-word inquiry unleashes from Cleopas this full-blown exposition of all that's happened over the past few days. It runs on for six verses, from verse 19 to verse 24, the things that Cleopas and his friend knew for a fact the things they wished they knew, the things they can't quite figure out yet. It's all there in his response to that simple question, what things? Sometimes, as you may know, when you grieve, you just have to get it all out. You have to put it all out there on the table it's therapeutic some people need to sob it out convulsively in gallons of tears like Mary Magdalene did earlier that morning at the empty tomb when she didn't know where it was they had taken her Lord Jesus but others who grieve get it all out by telling their story giving their own personal take on things that's what Cleopas does here And it takes Jesus' personal, in-the-flesh appearance to him to provide this service of personal consolation in his distress. A second thing the resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus does for his people is to confront the doubting. As he consoles the distressed, he also confronts the doubting and despite everything there still are these lingering doubts in the mind of cleopas and his companion aren't there there are things they know for sure they know for instance that jesus was a good man and a great teacher they know for a fact that he's dead But then there was that unbelievable report of those women. Wasn't there? Everything Cleopas told Jesus so far had left them in this deep blue funk. And then we reach verse 22. But also, some women among us amazed us. Now, Bear in mind, stranger, that these are good, solid, reliable women we're talking about. We have absolutely no reason to doubt them. But these women came to us earlier today telling us things that just can't be. And so they're in some doubt about the way things actually stand, aren't they? There are things we know, but they're the things that these women reported to us, and we can't figure it out. They're in doubt. And you've been there too, haven't you? I mean, teetering on that knife edge between what you know to be true on the one hand and what you earnestly hope to be true. You may know, for instance, that you're a single mother coming out of this disastrous relationship and that no good man could ever actually be interested in you. But you hope otherwise. Or you know that you're a man absolutely without prospects in life and that no woman would ever so much as give you the time of day. But you hope otherwise. Or, you may be lost at sea, adrift on the face of the wide ocean. And though you know it's impossible, you hope against hope that some ship might actually appear on the horizon, that distant, unbroken horizon, and that ship might actually spot you, and come to you, and rescue you. These two men on the road to Emmaus have their doubts, they know what they know, but the reports they heard make them hope otherwise. So in order to confront their doubts, the risen Lord Jesus, thirdly, confirms the direction that the scriptures scriptures have all pointed ever since the days of Moses. He confirms the direction the scriptures have all pointed since Moses. Do all these things you're telling me confuse you, Cleopas? Do the reports of the women about an empty tomb leave you with doubts in your mind? Oh, foolish men, and slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things? Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these very things that distress you, these very things that you're talking about? Wasn't it necessary for him to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I sometimes wondered whether Cleopas and his friend didn't wish they lived even farther from Jerusalem. Maybe Rome, maybe Spain, maybe Jesus was going that far. Because when Jesus expounds the scriptures, a mere seven miles can pass so quickly. Don't you wish you were there to listen in to that sermon? I certainly do. That would be a sermon worth hearing. How all the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi, all of them tell us not only of the coming of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, but also of his suffering and death and resurrection and ascension and coronation and reigning from heaven for the good of the church. It's all there. In the scriptures of the Old Testament. Well, unfortunately for these two, they soon reach Emmaus, and the day's declining. So if they can't go any farther with them on the way, they prevail upon him at least to stay with them for supper and presumably lodge with them for the night. Because excellent hospitality, of course, isn't just a biblical. Uh, but a Middle Eastern virtue to this very day. Spend the night. Spend the week with us. Let us feed you. Let us care for you. And once again, Luke's own narrative of the unfolding events that evening really can't be improved upon by me. What I want to emphasize, though, is my fourth and final main point, that the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples create the drive to tell the world. They create the drive to tell the world. These men had just covered seven leisurely daylight miles on foot to reach their home in Emmaus, hadn't they? And the day is declining when they arrive home. They sit down to supper Their eyes are open to Jesus in his blessing and breaking of the bread, and then suddenly, inexplicably, he vanishes from their sight. We don't know how, we don't know why, but he vanishes from their sight. The sun's nearing the horizon by now, isn't it? Or already set. And so what do they do? Do they wait for the morning light? Do they get a good night's rest, maybe a hearty breakfast before they head back? No. They arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 of those who were with them. That return trip over the same ground they had just covered earlier that day, that trip was neither leisurely nor was it lit anymore by the light of day. Had you been there on the road, had you been walking along that same dark road that led out of Jerusalem toward your home, you might have at first heard and then briefly seen as they passed by you, two men running madly in the opposite direction, talking, laughing, giddy with wonder. Seven miles they covered in the dark now to reach Jerusalem to find the meeting place that they had left that very morning to break the news. And once they got there, all they discovered was that the news had already broken. Oh yes, we already know. The tomb's empty. Power of the grave is broken. The Lord has risen indeed. In fact, He's already appeared to Simon. Not to mention Mary, and now you, and others. This prisoner of the Sanhedrin and of Pilate and of Herod, this prisoner of the grave itself, He's given them all the slip. They still at large. Just a final application of this passage. To bring us full circle today, we began by considering how astonishing it is that humanity continues cleaving to its various pet theories on society and politics and other much lesser things while ignoring the historic triumph of Jesus Christ over the grave. It's astonishing. Let me suggest to you that this cultural disconnect between established historical fact and the actual operating theology of our 21st century society, that disconnect may be due to the fact that the nations, when they're challenged to believe the gospel, they see God's own holy nation, the church, Spiritually diluted, divested of power by our own failure to believe and trust and obey without qualification our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't convince the world of these things, perhaps it's because we think and we reason and we act too much like we used to. Too much like they still do out there. So did the Lord Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead as both the ancient scripture and first century eyewitnesses attest? Did he really rise from the dead? If the answer to that question is no, then let's just not bother to meet again next week or ever because we've all got better things to do on a Sunday morning but if the answer to that question is yes he's risen from the dead then please let us jettison this whole naturalistic world and life view into which the public schools and the courts of law and the media and advertising have so carefully indoctrinated us Let's abandon that ship. Let's give it up. Declare your independence from that kind of closed universe thinking and take your cues. Begin taking your cues from better authority. Because we march to a different drummer now. We serve a different captain. As the psalm so wisely urges, put... No confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for not only being the author of life and bringing us into being, but by the blood of Jesus Christ and his atoning death, giving us eternal life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, has conquered and vanquished death itself, that we, his people, may live. We pray that we may come to appreciate this, to walk no more according to the course of this world to walk in newness of life according to the light of the gospel and this glorious news of his resurrection from the dead grant these things we pray in his precious name amen